Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we'll be looking at Carry and Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Now you're going to notice something in the first introductory part of this recording, because it's been one of those weeks again where lots of stuff has been happening, and I'm trying my best to get this out on a Sunday. And I just recorded the introduction, and I recorded it on my iPad, which I don't do a lot, and I um, I used the wrong kind of connector from my microphone to the iPad, so... For the, for the introduction of this, I'm saying this now so that you understand, because I don't want to... Uh, there's something that Blind Boy, one of my favourite podcasts, is a podcast by a gentleman called Blind Boy, who's from a group called The Rubber Bandits. Um, and he calls there's something he calls the podcast hug, which is the sort of sound quality of the podcast hug. So technically I'm doing something very different be, just because of a few little technical snags that I've had. So I'm not recording it the normal way I record it. But I got it even worse <laughs> when I recorded the introduction, and I don't really have time to re-record it. So, the next few minutes, your podcast hug might be affected, okay? So, I'm just letting you know now that the sound may be a bit weird and roomy. Maybe you'll like it, I don't know. So, you're going to hear all kinds of noises, and my voice will be very echoey, and it just won't be the sound that I endeavour to get. I'm very obsessed with this thing sounding good. A podcast has to sort of sound good, and the voice of the podcaster has to sound good. So, that might not be the case for the first uh, 10 or so minutes of this podcast, and then from when I read the poem onwards, everything will be hopefully fine again. So it's just a warning now. So hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets. And now you're going to hear me say almost exactly the same thing, but with worse sound for about 10 minutes. Okay. Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we will be looking at Carrion Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins. So we're back with the Victorians. We were looking at the um the Garden of Something by uh by 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 Algernon Charles Swinburne. I've forgotten the name already. It was a it was one of them underworld gardens. And and uh the garden is it the Garden of Proserpine? It was the Garden of Proserpine, there we go. I'm remembering my own podcast from two weeks ago. That's that's a kind of amazing brain that I have. So today we will be looking at a different kind of Victorian poem in the sense that if there were sort of some big concerns of the poetry of the Victorian era, um, one of those big concerns was the crisis of faith. And I spoke a bit about the Victorian crisis of faith when we looked at Swinburne's Garden of Proserpine. Now, Swinburne was very much coming at it from the other side, very irreverent, not a religious man, perhaps an enemy of religion. And also, actually, it's interesting because there's these both these poets have have links some more tenuous than others to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood as well so let's get back to Swinburne so Swinburne as we know he was irreverent he was one of these people that perhaps wanted to replace uh, Christianity with worship for the old gods he was certainly a bit of a wild wild one bit of a mad lad in his time but he uh, in the end he lived a quieter life in Putney where he wrote nature poetry and and again, there's connections here between Manly Hopkins, but Manly Hopkins is definitely coming at it from the other side, um, much like Matthew Arnold, another great Victorian poet. And I do keep threatening to look at um, Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold, and I will in a few weeks time, perhaps. 
Uh, maybe I'll do some Christmas-related poems in the next few weeks as well. But if we get back to Gerald Manley Hopkins, very much the other side of things, a very religious and pious man. We'll, we'll look at a few notes of his, um, of his biography. Oh. I'm sorry if there's going to be, there's going to be noises in this podcast. I'm in my office. There's a street outside. I've got a bit of a clicky mouse because I'm looking at notes from a screen. So Gerald Manley Hopkins was kind of the opposite of Swinburne in the sense that he was a very, very pious and holy man throughout his life. He certainly had his crises of faith. But his crises of faith tended to be towards how holy he should be, how many things that he should give up. Um, so he was born in 1844. He died in 1889. His poetry was never published during his lifetime. It was published 30 years after his death, after World War I, as one of his friends um, had his work published. And that's when he certainly rose to the attention of the moderns, as some neglected poets often did. Um, so, so he started off, he lived... Even though he orbited London in a lot of his childhood, um, he spent most of his time in, in, in quite lovely little corners outside of London. So um, rather than sort of spending time in, in growing up in the city, he spent time in Hampstead. I think his dad worked in Hampstead and I think his family home was in Hampstead. He studied in Highgate I think he sometimes lived, I think, with his grandparents in Hainault Forest. So that's way out east. So I'm guessing that's near Epping Forest as well. And he, uh, yes, and then he studied in, in Highgate. So he, he certainly spent a lot of his time in the, in the leafier parts of London. A bit like how um, some people went, went to Putney. Um, he spent his time around those very nice parts of London. The parts where, where Keats, you know, where Hampstead was where Keats lived. And that's where he wrote Ode to a Nightingale as well. Um, and of course Hampstead Heath, a wonderful beauty spot in the middle of London with a wonderful art gallery called Kenwood House. So his father, his father made his money work. I think his father ran an insurance company, um, not just any kind of insurance company, a, um, I think a shipping insurance company. So he was dealing with shipwrecks quite a lot. And his father also wrote poetry as well. And he was a very holy man himself. So all of these things seem to rub that just seem to be passed down to his children, especially his, his first child, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, his father was called Manley Hopkins. It's a wonderful name, isn't it? So, yes, he, he, Manley Hopkins wrote a lot of poetry and, and you could see there's a, a bit of an influence and even competition between father and son later on in life within their poetry. Um, they were both taken, perhaps it was quite important, the subject of sea wrecks and shipwreckings was quite important in both in both of their careers as poets but they also conferred with nature and they were both very much influenced by the romantics so by Keats and Wordsworth um, but also in, in, influenced by um, poets such as um, George Herbert so very pious religious poets as well so very concerned with God and nature um, both of them but this is something that we see throughout Gerard Manley Hopkins's work so he went to Oxford um, he got a reputation, I can't remember if this was at school, I think he was, was at school or at Oxford, where he was already quite a pious young man and would deny himself certain things. He, he, he had a wager with his friends to see if he could go a week without water. Um, in the course, and he didn't have week, water for a week, and in the course of that week, his um, tongue went black. 
And then he collapsed. But he won the bet. And then he went another week without salt. So he kept on doing these mad little bets of things that he would go without. He felt that when he was at that young age, he felt that people drank too many fluids and they didn't need that many. Like the body was full of fluids. So why do we keep, why do we need to keep drinking fluids? You know, that statement actually answers the question when you think about it. But he certainly was preoccupied with denying the body. Um, so he went to Oxford. He studied at Oxford. He loved Oxford as well. He was very inspired by the countryside at Oxford. And you can see why nature was so important to him because he, he had the good, good luck to just grow up, um, during the, you know, during the industrial years, really, the, the Victorian industrial revolution. He seemed to spend most of his time not in polluted cities, but in, um, beautiful, tranquil woodland and other places as well. So, um, Let's look at a little bit about his poetry, about the rest of his life, and then we'll read the poem. His work took place within that idea of that Victorian crisis of faith, the fact that the age of the earth by then was known to be much, much older than the Gospels and the scriptures seemed to say it was, so millions of years old. And actually, I think at the time they thought that the earth was millions of years old. And then now we know it's billions of years old, of course. But and then, of course, um, Charles Darwin as well and Alfred R Russell Wallace publishing their findings on evolution by natural selection. And so there was this Victorian crisis of faith going on that um, was actually, again, I went into this detail in the uh, Algon and Charles Swinburne episode. So I'm not going to I'm going to glance over these details now, but the Victorians sort of dealt with this with this crisis of faith in different ways, some became faithless others looked for the old gods others got into spiritualism as well and i think one reason why is that it felt like god was was retreating from the material world and so this awareness or this um this this need for a spiritual realm opened up and i think we saw some of this in how victorians suddenly wanted to talk to ghosts all the time but also Christianity perhaps went into this more looked more at the scriptures and looked more at the gospels especially the Gospels, actually, especially books like Genesis, as not being literal. Now, the idea of those not being literal was actually thousands of years old. I think it goes back to even Augustine. I think St. Augustine said that ultimately, if there are contradictions within the Bible, if we find two contradictory, two actual passages that contradict each other in the Bible, it means that their their truth is not literal. literal. It's a transcendental, transcendent truth to those chapters. I hope I'm getting my theology right here. So these ideas of certain parts of the Bible not being literally true, these are thousands of years old. People well, people have been thinking this way throughout centuries. And it's more that we have this very, in the past maybe, past century or so, we've had this quite intense return to very literal interpretations of the Bible by some quarters. So how did Swinburne's poetry, if it was about nature, react to this crisis of faith. So while there, perhaps others were retreating from nature, Swinburne was very much staring intensely into nature. He felt that nature proclaimed God's work better than man could. And perhaps we could line him up with poet, with uh, critics such as Ruskin because of this. So he was very much into drawing and painting as well. That's why he loved late nature. He had this sort of John Ruskin, the critic John Ruskin, he followed John Ruskin in that sense of, of drawing being a way of, of sharpening your eye and your mind, a way of exploring the world. Um, I kind of believe that's true as well. I think people should draw more rather than take photos of stuff all the time. Um, when you draw something, you really look at it. 
you don't really look at something unless you perhaps you are an, a super brilliant photographer most of the time you don't really look at something when you photograph it in fact if anything you photograph something to avoid looking at it in that moment thinking that the future you will really give it a good looking over when you're right in front of the thing right now and drawing is a great way of being right in front of the thing right now so his idea of god was very much he felt that nature actually was the greatest exemplar of god but actually god was expressed nature was god's book and god was expressed through nature and no matter how savage nature could be or how tranquil nature could be it was still an expression of the nature of god ultimately nature was god perhaps or maybe that was a step too far um so we find this in the sublime paintings of the time as well, actually. So some of the paintings by, for instance, Turner, these ideas of if you look at these paintings painted in the sublime style, nature suddenly becomes vast and almost terrifying. And it's almost this, this, um, the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, the 20th century German poet, said that beauty is the beginning of terror. And I think the sublime paintings really caught that, that very point where beauty is becoming terror. Where, where terror is beginning because when you look at these sublime paintings they are all often about horrible disasters but there is a sense in which they are also beautiful at the same time so I think that worked its way into some of his poetry so a little bit about his poetry he wrote very much in the in the style of Keats and Wordsworth but also another poet who had a big influence on him was Christina Rossetti this is a connection to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood here so rather he, he was he sort of was inspired by the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood because of how they, they've had a Christian slant on looking at mythology and so on. But, uh, you know, he's certainly the opposite of Swinburne. But he, um, he, it was Christina Rossetti that really, really influenced him, uh, especially her religious work. And a lot of his poems, even though, as I said, he wasn't really published until 30 years after he died. Because I think, especially with his cadences and his rhythms, he was very, very ahead of his time. He, um, he, he was responding to her ideas of faith and her, her, her responses to the crisis of faith as well and her devoutness. She believed also that sort of religion um, was more important than poetry. And so she would, if, if, if her religious frame of mind was the most important thing and if poetry threatened her religious frame of mind, then she would stop writing poetry. And it was the same with Manley Hopkins as well, Gerard Manley Hopkins, in the sense that he um, he... he well, throughout his life, he became more devout. He stopped writing poetry for seven years at one point. And, and he also, his reason for stopping painting as well was also that it, painting was too passionate <laughs> and poetry was more contemplative. Now, I don't know if, um, I don't know if that's true, but his devoutness and his inspiration by certain saints, whose name I forget, who, who were well known for burning paintings and destroying works of art, but they felt distracted from our pursuit of God. He did the same with his own work. So after, so in 1868, he burnt his own poems. I'm guessing some survived, but he burnt the poems and he didn't write poetry for seven years. In that time, he converted to Catholicism and he eventually became a Jesuit priest. So he became a very devout man. And it was only after another shipwreck happened, uh, the name of it happened, but it's one of his most poems, most famous poems that he wrote. And I've completely forgotten the name of the poem um but but basically there was a, a a shipwreck in which some i think some nuns and some holy men were killed and then i think the curate in in his diocese or whatever said oh someone needs to write a poem about this and that's when he felt the divine calling to write poetry again from from um, 1877 
And he, uh, no, sorry, 1875 was, was the year, not 1877. In 1877, he became a Jesuit priest. And so he was writing poetry again. And I think from this mid 1870s onwards, his style had changed. He was writing more in his mature style, the style that he's famous for. He was writing his intense poems about nature. And then in those final years, though, well, in this last phase of his life, he he, tra he travelled all over as a priest. But most of the time he found himself in industrial cities. So he found himself far away from the idyllic environs that he loved most about God, about you know, that communicated what he loved most about God. One little thing also, he had a rivalry as a, an artist with his brother Arthur. I think most people say now that Arthur was the better the better artist of the two. And perhaps this is what pushed him into his wonderful poetry, where he, probably the other poet in his family was his dad. And I think he showed himself to be a, a better poet than his dad. But these rivalries seemed to push him at the same time. So, um, yeah, so... He found God in these rural idylls, and he certainly he spent a, a little while in Oxford as well, where he wrote um, some famous poems such as Binsey Poplars, which was a protest against certain trees being cut down in Oxford. But ultimately, he was he was in his idea of hell, and his idea of hell was the city, especially the polluted city. He spent time in central London, um, in Manchester, in a town near Manchester, also in Chesterfield, Liverpool. And uh, Dublin, and Dublin was where he went to teach classics and Greek, and that's where he eventually died. He died of typhoid typhoid fever, and so the, 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 all these towns are very polluted, and it seems that pollution brought on um, polluted drinking water, gave him the typhoid fever. So his his idea of of the city being an unholy place wasn't entirely founded on excessive piousness or snobbishness. It really the cities killed him in the end. Um, and so, but I think it informs the sequence of poems from which we're reading one today, Carrie and Comfort. And that is that these were his poems called his terrible sonnets. And they certainly strike us when we read them as someone who is having a crisis of faith. And we, and immediately we can reflect on the Victorian crisis of faith. Now, what they're about is actually something known sort of in these classical theories as acedia. And acedia is a state almost like it is um, a slothfulness of the soul. It is when the soul sort of cannot see God, cannot find God, feels alienated from God. But there is a hopeful aspect to a CDR, which is more that it's a kind of challenge that one is going through before one is reunited with God. It's something to be overcome so that your faith becomes stronger than ever before. And it's related to another state, which is called tristitia or tristitia again from the Latin, and it's sort of about how Acedia imbues the world, so his environment sort of being full of this woe, this hopeful hopelessness infecting the world, and how he has to challenge that in order to find God. Now one thing that's noticed in these poems, these terrible sonnets, is perhaps because his environment is so oppressive, his gaze turns inward at himself, and that's where this, he can watch this struggle happening within, and that's very much for drama, now, the, the, the poems, even though we, we read a certain hopelessness in them, they really are about this sort of struggle, this struggle of faith. And so 
that's what we're going to look at now. Um, so I think that's enough. I think, as I said, yes. So he died in 1889, um, actually, and that was from pollution or polluted drinking polluted water that gave, that gave him typhoid fever. You know, he was a relatively young man when he died. And so what some of his latest poems were these terrible sonnets. And that's what we're going to look at right now. Okay, the roomy sound has finished. We're back to the microphone set up with the correct microphone lead leading to my iPad. I hope you enjoyed some of the noises of my world. Um, you might have heard some intrusions of children at some point. Um, those are actually ghost children from the previous tenants of the house. Um, one of them was a kind of caretaker who um was was uh slowly driven mad i i think they made a film about it anyway let's read the poem carry and comfort by gerard manley hopkins not i'll not carry and comfort despair not feast on thee not untwist slack they may be these last strands of man in me or most weary cry i can no more i can can something hope wish day come not choose not to be but ah o thou terrible why wouldst thou rude on me thy ring world right foot rock lay a lion limb against me Scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones, And fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heap there, Me frantic to avoid thee, and flee. Why? That my chaff might fly, my grain lie sheer and clear, Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kissed the rod, Hand rather, my heart, lo, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, Cheer, cheer whom though, the hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod me, or me that fought him, oh which one, is it each one, that night, that year, of now done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with my God, my God. So that was Carry and Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, so that's quite an intense poem to read. And it's certainly, the first thing we notice is, is, is that it's a sonnet. So it is one of his terrible sonnets. And it's not terrible in the sense that, you know, one of the sonnets I've written. It's more one of the sonnets that's obviously about this terrible pain, this spiritual struggle. And how is that struggle reflected in the poem? Well, as always, I'm going to loosely refer to the form because I'm talking about a sonnet while I talk about the argument of the poem. And the reason why I do this is because, again, as I said last week when we were looking at Walter Raleigh, the form in the sense that how the poem is divided into lines and stanzas, and this is a two stanza sonnet. But even then, when the sonnet is one big old block of text, there normally seems to be certain conventions about the how the poem progresses. So before I talk about the lines and before I talk about more technical aspects of the poem, um, how long the lines are, the amount of stresses and repetitions there are in the lines, let's just look at what he's actually saying, because there, I think there is something he's actually saying, which makes my job relatively easier. And I think what we can do is divide what he's saying into groups of four lines groups of eight lines and groups of six lines so we'll start off with this first octave of the sonnet um, and it's written very much like a like an italian sonnet 
so we have first octave which which very much is like a Petrarchan sonnet that's a kind of Italian sonnet with its rhyme scheme and how really the argument follows a certain line before there is a turn after the eighth line so let's let's look at this argument so he's addressing despair but he's addressing despair as carrion comfort so despair is a kind of comfort yes but it's the kind of comfort which, which is roadkill it really is the lowest thing to eat he's saying that, that out of all the comforts despair is a cheap you know that, that idea of just feeling sorry for yourself and self-pity it's the cheapest form of comfort it is like finding rather than being the, the hunting rather than being the eagle you're the, you're the buzzard or the uh the vulture just looking for something that's already dead to eat which probably isn't as nutritious nutritious as the still beating heart of a little helpless mouse so sorry i'm going off on one there i i, I think i was a, a really nasty eagle in my previous life so the first line is very much i will not feast on this carrion comfort which is despair and it moves on not untwist slack they me be these last strands of man that is a beautiful blooming line isn't it not untwist slack they may be these last strands of man i like it because it implies that man is literally just a a, a a configuration if anything rather than something essential i don't think he meant that but it's very victorian the fact that a, a man is is a knot that the world gets tied up in <laughs> maybe that's what he means maybe maybe he's thinking more about god's nature and how it gets twisted and we are twisted examples of god's nature I don't know. So, in those last strands of man in me, or most weary, cry, I can no more. I can. Can something, hope, wish they come, not choose not to be. Well, obviously, there's a reference to Shakespeare and Hamlet there, and that final line of those first four lines, the first um, quatrain, the first half of the octave. So, he addresses the fact that he will not wallow in self-pity nor will he perhaps not die by his own hand he will not be tempted by death so he's choosing let's just leave it and not be not to be anyway so let's go on to the next next four lines but ah but that o thou terrible why wouldst thou rude on me thy ring world right foot rock lay a lion limb against me scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones and fan oh in terms of tempest me heaped there me frantic to avoid thee and flee he's still addressing despair despair is something that is putting him through the ringer at the moment so why wouldst thou rude on me well is he though is he still addressing despair he's certainly addressing despair in the first four lines so i think we have to take it that he's still addressing despair but he's talking about despair is doing all these things to him. You know, he's putting his... That's a wonderful, wonderful alliteration here. Why wouldst thou rude on me thy ring world right foot rock? Wow. What is a ring world? Not a ring world as in a, a wedding ring. But a W-R-I-N-G is in the way a washerwoman rings the clothes dry. Or a washerman. Or a washerperson. <laughs> I'm a social justice warrior and proud of it. So anyway... Why wouldst thou rude on me this ring world right foot rock? Just, I guess just stamping on me this ring world, this world that rings things out. Right foot rock. Just all the troubles of a world place against him. And then again at the same time, lay a lion limb against me. Wow. I don't know if that's, that's obviously not someone ripping the, the leg of a lion and just sort of like, I'm just going to put that next to you right now. Obviously he's saying that again, 
nature is against him and the lion is very much a good, a good illustration of nature's wrath I think lay a lion limb against me but of course there's some beautiful alliteration going on which we'll talk about in a little while scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones and fan oh in terms of tempest me heaped here me frantic to avoid thee and flee so you're looking cruelly at, you're not only just banging your rock leg against me and your lion leg against me your rock foot sorry and your lion leg you're also just giving me a proper nasty glance as well really staring judgmentally at me devouring me with your glance and at the same time you're sending these just these big old storms these tempests and i'm heaped here and i can't get away so there's your first four lines first eight lines even so as i said in a sonnet normally especially in an italian sonnet there's a certain form of argument in the first eight lines and he's certainly while he's saying he's not going to feel sorry for himself a lot of his, his lines do seem to consist of him at the same time feeling a bit sorry for himself so what changes well he asks this question why and his immediate answer why that my chaff might fly my grain lies sheer and clear so he he's moving on from this description of a tempest of this wind and he's saying well you know my chaff so we know about the grain and the chaff the grain is the good things the chaff is what we don't want the the non-nutritious bit the coating of the seed he's saying that actually this this storm will blow the chaff from me it will blow the bad from me and it will leave the grain lying sheer and clear nay in that toil that coil since i've kissed the rod i think i need to explain that don't i the rod is obviously you know we know old victorian sayings i'm guessing this is victorian sayings which is um spare the rod spoil the child the rod being this idea of of of, of pedagogical punishment the teacher using the rod against the child so he's saying kiss the rod it's it's you know weren't we talking about swinburne and his sadomasochism um that he that he certainly had and isn't there a little bit here kissing the rod and then kissing the hand that holds the rod so nay in all that toil that coil since seems i kissed the rod hand rather my heart low lapped strength stole joy would laugh cheer so because i kissed the hand because i loved learnt to love the punishment when i saw that this wind was blowing my chaff away from me and making me more pure i looked to the hand that i thought was punishment expressed my love for it and suddenly strength and joy and laughter and cheer so it then asks the question cheer whom though the hero whose heaven handling flung me foot trod me so that's god is the hero whose heaven handling flung me or maybe jesus foot trod me or me that fought him oh which one is it each one that night that year of now done darkness i wretch lay wrestling with my god my god so he's asking these questions about who he's cheering is he cheering god or is he cheering himself for his courage in rising to god's challenge um, which one where is this coming from is the joy coming from outside or inside and then he speaks about that night that year of now done darkness i wretch i wretch he's not retching as in you know like some of us might do after a few too many in a dodgy biryani it's more um you know he's wretches in i'm i'm i, I am a wretch w-r-e-t-c-h lay wrestling with my god my god it's an amazing final line i i i won't get into the repetition yet because i think the repetition is an important thing to talk about 
when we go through the more technical analysis of the poem so he's a wretch and he lay wrestling that night and even the year with my god my god so there's this first exclamation of my god as in the oh my goodness and then finally my god so one one the one expression of my god is is almost like a colloquial expression perhaps a casual expression and then the second is more serious um and of course the illusion here of course is jacob and the angel from the scriptures from the old testament where um jacob i can't remember the exact chapter he sent his wives over a bridge and then some angel turned up and he he just sort of knew as an angel rather uh, knew as a man and for some reason him and his man wrestled an entire night this mighty angel and um come the day the angel said please let go of me and she said your name is israel now rather than jacob i think so he had this wrestling match of an angel and of course that image of of wrestling with an angel has certainly become a predominant image not just throughout the struggles of faith that people have had over the years but that, that particular victorian struggle of faith wrestling with god wrestling with the angel the night terrors i think that is certainly something that comes through and is definitely alluded to at the end of his poem so ultimately there is despair but ultimately what is despair remember when i said about him looking into nature and then him looking into himself now but i think he's looking into himself in the same way that he looks into nature so in the same way that we look at the sublime in nature and we see it as something that's cruel ultimately we see it as an, an, an illustration of the glory of god perhaps for judgment of god perhaps for challenge of god and now he's looking at that same intensity from the natural world to his inner world and he sees what seems like a storm at first is actually something that's making him purer a struggle he has to take in order to become more godly more holy and so that's what the wrestling all night sort of figure means in this poem so now we got that that idea of it out of the way let's have a look at some of the technical aspects of the poem firstly i know i it's a struggle i have my own little struggle working out what kind of meter this poem is written now i would say i've counted seven stresses in some lines and much more stresses but ultimately i think the lines resolve into six metric feet and that would be sexameter or sexameter whichever way you pronounce it it still sounds fruity so again when we look at the form of a poem when we look for perhaps the meter that a poem is written in it's best not to finger count for a start because the syllable count is all over the place in this poem and stresses is a good way to sort of think of a metric foot happening around each stress normally so normally we're around one stress syllable but it's accompanied either side by a couple of unstressed syllables one or two unstressed syllables sometimes three unstressed syllables and ultimately that gives us an idea of what meter the poem is now this poem the meter is tricky because there are lots of metric feet that consist of two stresses so rather than a stress and an unstressed syllable or a couple of unstressed syllables there are two stresses together and that is called a spondee a spondee normally happens not all over a poem certainly it normally slows down the poem if you um, listen to my podcast on slow slow fresh fount by ben johnson we look at how a poem can be slowed down by use the use of spondees by using more stressed syllables because and alliteration in order to slow the speaker down and that happens in this poem as well because there's plenty of alliteration in this poem it's a finely wrought poem um, but the lines are long and I think one reason why the lines are quite long is because 
we actually have more stress syllables and we have metric feet consisting of two stress syllables. So for instance, let's have a look. The vi ring world, right foot rock, lay a lion limb against me. So, you know, vi ring world, right foot rock, lay a lion limb against me. Lots of stressed syllables nudging against each other. It makes them quite difficult to read out, but actually the alliteration Sort of helps and impairs me in my reading um, so yes lots of metrically lots of stress syllables within the lines but ultimately I think the lines divide up into being about six metric feet each line so that's a little extra metric foot than your average sonnet but it feels longer basically because of of the amount of stress syllables there are so the rhyme scheme follows the typical rhyme scheme of a um, of a Petrarchan sonnet, especially for the first part. So it's V man can be me scan fan flee. A B B A A B B A. A real challenge when writing in English because there are, when you write in Italian, there are more words that rhyme with each other. And English, which is a mixture between the Romantic languages and Anglo Saxon or modern English and Middle English, it's, there aren't as many rhyming words. When poetry that was written in Anglo-Saxon never really used rhyme, it used alliteration instead. And we find lots of alliteration. So, no, well not, well that's repetition, but we can call it alliteration as well. Carry and comfort, display, not feast on thee, uh, not untwist, slack they may be these last strands of man. Um, well, the alliteration doesn't really get going. <laughs> I've got, but luckily, I've got. I'm going to have to start publishing my notes on these poems because I, I, I have little colour codes, and so alliteration, I, I, I kind of use a, a little blue highlight to the beginning of each word, and then assonance, which is or rhyme, I highlight the end of each word in yellow. So, actually, firstly, there's a lot of assonance. So, carrying comfort obviously is alliterative, and then. But also there's some assonance within the, the end of the first line, not feast on V. So even though V also rhymes with B, me and flee in the rest of this opening octave, it also has a sort of vowel rhyme with feast just before it. And um, in the next line, these last strands of man, assonance again, strands of man, which mirrors feast and V. Um, and then in me, almost weary, again, more assonance carrying over from feast and thee. And then I can, rhyming with strands of man, no more, I can. Um, so, so rhymes, ca rhymes of can and be and me do carry on throughout the lines as well in internal rhyme, in assonance. Right. So, when we look at alliteration, it's certainly there in Viring World, Right Foot Rock, or actually it begins, if we could just go in by W's, Why wouldst thou rude on me, Viring World, Right Foot Rock, but really, even though it's ring, so yeah, WW, <laughs> Why wouldst and Ring World, although Ring World also, Ring is like an R rhyme, because even though it begins with a W, it's segs into an R rhyme instead, which goes with Right Foot Rock. Then lay a lion limb against thee. Again, lots of LLL. Um, with darksome, devouring eyes. More alliteration. My bruised bones. More alliteration there. And in turns of tempest. So alliteration really, especially in that second quatrain. So the last four lines of that octave. Lots of alliteration. Again, what does it, what does it do? 
one thing I'm always telling my students when they write poetry is make your lines more interesting than simply being a race to the line at the end of each, the rhyme at the end of each line. And this certainly happens here. But I think it's also the intensity of the poem, the alliteration, the intensity, the heaviness of the lines and the way that, that the, the use of, of double stresses, spondees, and alliteration really slows down the poem that we get this idea of struggle and wrestling and fighting to get words out even the way that it slows down the language and also the sort of the, the double stresses the sort of pounding bang bang quality of them as well I think come together with what is being argued in these lines to give a real sense of struggle so looking at the final sestet the rhyme scheme is clear rod cheer trod year god some amazing line rhymes there, but obviously um, C D C D C D, which is a f sort of form of Petrarchan again Italian um, rhyming. So the alliteration isn't quite as strong in the final sestet, apart from the final line where we have sort of done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with, and then my God, my God, which is repetition. But we still, oh no, wait, and then my heart low lapped strength strength and stole as well so there's certainly in heaven handling actually there's lots of alliteration <laughs> oh ignore me but this is what i want to get into now another aspect of the poem which is repetition there are plenty of words and the, I've, I've highlighted these with pink i should really upload these maybe i'll share them on, on twitter i don't know so let's look at the amount of lines that are repeated so no i'll not begins the poem uh, not sorry not I'll not so two knots begin um, and then can is also I can no more I can repeated and then can something that's a third time so a third can within a very short succession and then not choose not to be two knots again and then the next line but ah but oh terrible why wouldst thou rude on me um Volume well right for thing against me scan sorry I, I seem to get tired of, of highlighting these words i'm sure there's more repetitions here let's go to the end of the poem the last four lines and look for more repetition here so the um third line of a sestet ends with the word cheer and then the fourth line begins with the word cheer um we also have repetition of oh which one is it each one so one repeated there um and then finally perhaps the most important repetition in the poem is I, I wretch lay wrestling with my God, sort of in brackets, and then my God. So my God with an exclamation mark in brackets, and then my God. So what is, I, I don't know why I get, I get to this idea again of wrestling, these two conflict. And so I, I think that there's sort of this double, this pattern of repeated words, but always in a slightly different sense reflect that sense of having it out with yourself of, of arguing especially at the end that line as i've said already the idea of two senses of two senses of god being invoked the sort of my god which is ultimately this this exclamation of surprise followed immediately by my god again but a more somber perhaps a, a recognition that this ultimately the thing that he's been wrestling with is not his despair it's not the world being against him he was it was god that he was in contact with god was hidden in his own pain and by making peace with his own pain he finds god and i think that's really really emphasized with that final bit of repetition my god my god
Um, it's a really, really dense poem with so much stuff going on with the alliteration, the internal rhyme, the assonance and the repetition. Um, you could read the poem out to someone and if they listened to it, they wouldn't necessarily think it was a sonnet. Maybe internally, because the lines are a bit longer than a sonnet, internally if they listen to it, they might divide the lines at certain points. So it might not necessarily sound like a sonnet, even though when you look at it on a page it looks like a sonnet, because you can see the end rhymes, you can see the number of lines that it's written in, you can even see the classical sonnet division following the Italians from octave into sestet. So yeah, you can see why perhaps he didn't really appeal to people in his own time because yes it looks like a sonnet but it doesn't necessarily sound too much like a sonnet when it's read out and his cadences and his rhythm and his meter and the changes of register and the contradictory voices within the poem this might have been too much still for the victorians and people didn't want to publish him in his lifetime they did find his cadences awkward and his rhythms awkward um, they weren't quite traditional enough which is interesting because he, his poetry is religious and it's traditional in that sense it follows religious tradition but at the same time the way he expresses himself is, is quite modern it's quite a modern playing tinkering with the form so I guess that's another struggle within the poem a struggle between the innovation of the language and the tr tradition of the what, of what he's actually talking about this age old wrestling with God and so, yeah, the poem just contains all of these things and he certainly was was ahead of his time and you can really see why it was the, the modernists that um, that really, really found something within him. Oh, that's right. Okay, here's another thing. I'm just looking at my notes. And again, I've been telling you that, um, that a lot of these lines, I've used one kind of highlight for repetition of a word. I've used one kind of highlight for alliteration and I've used one kind of highlight for um assonance and rhyme so pink yellow and blue and there's only one word in which i seem to recognize all of these things even though repetition isn't really alliteration so maybe i'm a bit ahead of myself but that's the final final words of the poem the final two metric feet my god my god and the final god has is like a little rainbow it's like all of these things to come together in a resolution of the last word of the poem you know, formally they come together, but thematically they come together again because he recognises God and then he more seriously says, my God. And I find it really interesting that I have a rainbow of all three of his colours that do not decorate any other word in the poem apart from that word there, God. That's an interesting point to leave it on right there, isn't it, for my analysis. So that was Carry and Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins. So now it's time for me to drop all pretense at academic rigour and call upon someone. I mean, we've spoken about wrestling with God, haven't we? And we spoke about the, the wrestling act of faith, especially within the crisis of faith. So now that I'm about to wander off on one, which is an acronym for WOO, I think it's even more apt for us to call upon a wrestler to signify that it is now there is now an end to perhaps the, te the pretense of academic rigor, and it is time for us to wander off and one take it away, Ric Flair. <laughs> there we go. That was Ric Flair. I've got to wander off on one about wrestling, haven't I? So we've spoken about Jacob wrestling the angel, and of course wrestling has its references within within classical times. 
um, Greek, ancient Greeks, you know, it's Olympic sport, one of the first Olympic sports. So I thought I'd talk about wrestling and what wrestling is, particularly professional wrestling. Why am I talking about professional wrestling? Because it is still one of the most interesting and intriguing forms of entertainment. And I enjoy watching wrestling. I particularly am a fan of New Japan Professional Wrestling or New Japan Pro Wrestling or NJPW. That's my favourite wrestling company. Um, there are plenty of others I really like as well. But I, I want to talk a little bit about wrestling and how wrestling reflects the society that it takes place within. So professional wrestling, while Olymp amateur wrestling... This is the funny thing. Amateur wrestling is the real wrestling and professional wrestling is the fake wrestling. Um, fake wrestling is used as a bit of a pejorative term, especially now that we're in times of, of United, you know, UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship and cage fighting. And so wrestling is seen as the fake fighting because it's scripted. Of course, it's not really fake because what people do while they're trying their best not to actually hurt each other, um, they sustain big physical injuries and it is one of the most physically grueling things that you can do in the name of entertainment. Perhaps the most brutal form of, of, of storytelling and entertainment that we have. So it started off, professional wrestling started off, I think, perhaps in the UK or perhaps in America, in the carnival wrestling tradition, the carny tradition of wrestling. And it's never quite left that. It's always had that foot and that sort of freak show carnival quality of things. But the role of the professional wrestler or the fake wrestler in carnival, in, within carnivals and traveling fairs was to basically to, to give for a pretense of a, of a competition, of a physical competition for a paying audience. There was normally a sort of betting thing going on as well where sometimes the wrestler would be wrestling a few plants so they would be pretending to to fight and wrestle each other but they weren't really wrestling each other they were using all these tricks to make it look like a real context and then maybe some of these men would get the better of this wrestler and he'd look a bit tired and then they'd, uh, so these are men he would wrestle people who looked like they were volunteers from the audience but they weren't really volunteers they were plants finally they'd get a real volunteer <laughs> And maybe they'd, they'd have the person lay some money down and maybe this wrestler was looking really tired and maybe it looked like people could take him. And uh, and of course the wrestler would just take this guy, poor guy to the cleaners. Now that wasn't the only way in which it was done. Sometimes they would take volunteers as well. And this is another way in which professional wrestling was done. The professional wrestler would actually just use the volunteer as a bit of a man puppet. So they would allow the man to kind of get them into holds where they would struggle. And the man would think, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm really good. Wow. There's a whole thing about free will going on right there. And, um, and, but sometimes they would, they, they, they would then turn it round and suddenly if the person perhaps got the upper hand of them, they would use their, their grappling expertise, which where amateur wrestling pedigree comes into, into this, and they would get the guy into a hold where he would have to submit or where they would pin him down to the ground. So this sort of staged wrestling that maybe involved using plants all the way, or maybe involved using people from the audience that would be used as certain man puppets to make them look like they were on top for a little while before they were ultimately defeated. This is the tradition that professional wrestling sprung from, where ultimately we ended up watching these competitions which were scripted displays of athleticism and conflict in which normally there's one very clear good guy and one very clear bad guy. The, the good guy would be known as the face 
and the bad that's in the contemporary parlance and the bad uh, face is short for baby face and the bad guy would be known as the heel and so the professional wrestling that we know today pretty much still to a certain degree follows that template so during the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and maybe the early 80s people that were enthusiasts of wrestling did not accept it as scripted it was very much presented like it was real and so you might find footage of wrestlers being interviewed by news reporters and news reporters challenging the wrestlers and the wrestler basically slapping or or getting the news reporter in a hold or doing something to them where they're choking them and uh, there's one footage where i think giant haystacks is getting a guy Giant Haystacks was a British wrestler, gets a guy into a very tight headlock, and you can just hear the reporter going, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry. Now, this might itself be a work. Okay, I'm going to use a bit more wrestling slang here. So, um, there are two forms of, of dealing with the fiction of wrestling. So, yes, wrestling is scripted, but within wrestling, sometimes there are things that might not be scripted. So, and these are divided into terms of shoot and work. A work is when everything is going to the script, and a shoot is when someone goes off script. Now, a wrestler can go off script in two different ways. A wrestler can start shooting, for instance, when he gets, perhaps he's been booked to lose a fight, and then this wrestler goes into business for himself or herself, and they want to maybe actually beat up this wrestling champion and become the champion themselves, which did happen. So this would be called a shoot. And um, amateur wrestling grappling is, in this context, is referred to as shoot wrestling. Now, this is why champions normally had to have a very good amateur wrestling background or had to be quite good fighters in their own right. So they are great at the choreographed fighting of wrestling where they're trying to best to, to make it look like they're hurting the other guy when they're not hurting the other guy. But ultimately... Um, every now and again they actually the, the other guy might get ideas in his head so they have to ultimately defeat them and that's where real grappling comes in and that's shooting now the other term of shooting can be either interviews or people going off script when they're talking so when they're on the microphone when they're cutting what's called a promo so there can be a work which is when they're saying what they're expected to say and the shoot is when they start they go off script so there's works and shoots now Wrestling. So up until a certain point, people took it for real. And and so, the reason why I'm saying this is I'm saying that these things where they beat up the reporters, some of them might have actually been things that looked like shoots but were actually works. So, But the, the relationship between wrestling and reality changed in the 80s and the 90s particularly when more people knew that it was scripted. Until today, everyone knows wrestling is scripted. But we also, you know, we know it's pre-planned and everyone admits that. That's out in the open. And so the appreciation has changed if you watch any of the older wrestling whether it's Big Daddy in the UK or Bruno Sammartino in the United States of America it really is this guy is the working man and he's sticking up for all of us or Hulk Hogan as well and um, you know fighting for the rights of every man and we we cheer them and support them against the bad guys and then things changed when people started to know that it was scripted there were more anti-heroes brought into it and the people the way people address wrestling you know appreciate wrestling is more either in two ways it's either appreciating the, the athleticism of the wrestlers or it's when we get caught up in the fiction of it anyway in the same way of, of, of theatre so when the wrestlers tell a story and actually even though we know it's scripted in the same way that we know a film or theatre is scripted it's not fake because it touches us and we believe in this struggle between two people now here's a quick thing I want to end on back in the day when um, back when wrestling was believed there's a Roman Bartz the sort of cultural theorist wrote a book called Mythologies and he, it was about how 
mythologies, you know, they aren't just all these old things that people believe in. They're, they're things that people believe in in this day and age. And he identified different modern mythologies, the sort of functional fictions that make up our life. And the opening chapter is about wrestling. And I think one thing that he really appreciates in wrestling is when the wrestler has caught another wrestler in a kind of stranglehold and the bad guy is bearing down upon the good guy and the good guy is sort of using all of his strength to suffer the pain and indignity of a hold while trying to find his way maybe to a rope so the bad guy has to let go of the hold or to power his own way out of the hold. But there are points when the wrestlers almost become still like statues even though they're straining and there's great tension and he feels that it's actually a kind of theatre where the wrestlers resemble these classical statues of heroes caught in their great struggles where they're fighting a monster you know or just being bared down upon and that all these working men and women who are watching the wrestlers can ultimately identify with that because they they these poses that the wrestlers are striking personify the struggles of their lives and it is almost like that we are looking at these moving statues these classical statues that are telling the story in these very distinct points as they alternate between wrestling holds now today that's known as a rest hold so it's actually when the wrestlers get tired of a very athletic sequence and they want to get their breath back that's when one of them will get the other one in a headlock and they'll act like they're struggling but actually they're getting their breath back they're having a bit of a breather so what what he's talking about is rest holds and now modern audiences it seems that the emphasis has changed they're, they're more into the athleticism and they'll get quickly bored if there are too many rest holds even though rest holds are kind of used as a way of telling the story in a match so there's a sort of difference between the older audience that aren't as postmodern you could say even though we might see Roland Barthes as one of those first postmodern thinkers we uh, think of the times themselves as not entirely postmodern in senses that people still quite earnestly accept what has been placed before them whereas we're much more skeptical now in in how we look at wrestling and so we want to sort of see the wrestlers earn their money we know what a rest hold is and so we don't quite get caught up in the theater of it we just think oh you guys are resting do one so what am I going to say here? I don't know. I'm just going to say that, yes, it's interesting how actually that Roland Barthes identified something in that idea of wrestling that was in the rest hold that is perhaps we see in Manly Hopkins' poem as well. Something that we see in this struggle. And maybe that's why we still appreciate wrestling, even though we appreciate it in a slightly different way today, because it's more about the 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 whiz and the bang and the lighting and the athleticism and the spectacle whereas before it seemed to be a way in which working people could accept humans becoming living statues that reflected their own struggles in life and do we have anything now that we can just gaze upon that reflects our own struggles in life i don't know i guess that's another question for another time i think that's enough of me talking about wrestling it won't be the last time i talk about wrestling i'm kind of glad i get to talk about wrestling so thank you very much for listening um i'm gonna put the um, poem with the notes up on my twitter account so if you want to sort of find me on twitter it's poet nile p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l and if you scroll down from today's date which is the first of december you will hopefully find my my little picture of um, how i make notations on poems like this i think that might be quite interesting and i'll have to do it every week i'm again apologize if the sound hasn't quite been what it normally is today um it's just been a, one thing after another but man i got this i got this podcast out so that's really good and finally if you want to share the podcast with anyone um be it face to face 
ear to ear. I don't know how to share something ear to ear. <laughs> That's some kind of weird of communication that I'm not capable of. Morse code ear twitching. I don't know. But whichever way you want to share it or share it in the social media or if you want to review it, as I always say, um, that would, that do me a great kindness and I'd be very grateful for it. So thank you for listening. Hopefully we'll see you back uh, next Sunday. I'm going to stick to Sundays as my upload date, even though it means fewer listens. I don't care. That's how the trend has been anyway. But what I will say is... Um, Paradise Book Club, it, Paradise, not Paradise Book Club, Paradise Lost Book Club, totally different thing, will, will happen. It's gonna happen next year. It'll be the last, so in 2020, at the end of every month, I would be dealing with one book of Milton's Paradise Lost. And it will be kind of in a more book clubby type format. So if you wanna read the opening book of Paradise Lost, if you wanna read it with me, please do, and send me any notes or observations that you might have so I might use them in the podcast if that's the case and I'll keep on reminding people about this so it will be the book club will happen as the podcast at the end of the month every month of 2020 so um yeah please join in on that and again contact me via twitter poet nile or via rostysonnets at gmail.com if you'd like to join in in whatever way I'd like to quote people who are reading the text along with me. So that's that, guys. Thank you for listening. Have a good one.